You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's get started. The recording is in effect. Okay, so let me ask you, just as we get started, how many of you, I know we gained an hour, but how many of you just feel so jet-lagged this week? Not not always. Always, you're in a permanent state of jet lag. Okay. How about others? Has anybody felt, especially this week, feeling a little bit tired? Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling the same way. I was I was wide awake in the morning, and then about four in the afternoon when it's getting dark, or two thirty when it's getting dark. Yeah. And you. Okay, well let's uh, let's let's focus in because we have a um, a fun class tonight. I think it could be fun. <laughs> I hope it'll be fun. I think it'll be interesting. So we're carrying on in our class called "How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again." So a reminder: it's always good to be reminded the, the what the theme of the class is. The theme of the class is that the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that we do not notice it. You may not realize it, but you already hold particularly Christian-ish views. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, many of your assumptions about the nature of reality are rooted in a Christian revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. And so this is the air we breathe. It's all around us, but we don't notice it. The key event of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection has shaped our world in ways that we're not even aware of. And so, so far, we've looked at a lot of fun things. Uh, We've looked at um, the idea of equality. This idea that all human beings are equal. The inherent dignity of every human being. Human rights. And we talked about that these things are not self-evident. Even though everyone in our culture would, would hold to them, I think. But it's actually rooted in a biblical view of the Imago Dei. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. Then we looked at uh, family, marriage, and sex. And we discovered that many of the assumptions about what constitutes a family, many of our assumptions about sex, many of our assumptions about marriage, um, are actually rooted in a Christian revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. And then we shifted gears and we looked at two different but related assumptions about work and humility. And again, the dignity of work and the appeal of humanity are not self-evident. But humility as a virtue is actually, you can trace where that emerges. And it emerges roughly 2,000 years ago. Then we looked at the idea of progress, or progress. Um, And where does this idea come from? Where does the idea that uh, you can't stop progress, or that things are going to get better? Well... Again, it's, uh, it's rooted in a Christian worldview, but then we talked about progress, looking at progress for progress' sake without bringing God into the equation, and what do you end up with? Well, you end up with what takes place in the 20th century and a lot of the violence and bloodshed that took place in the name of progress. And then last week, Mike walked us through the story of science. 
why and how did science emerge in the West? Where do we get the idea, the value that we should follow the science? And what happens when we see the world increasingly in a mind-body kind of dualism or separation? When we remove God from the equation. So this has been fun stuff, hasn't it? <laughs> and good on you guys. I mean, this is not easy stuff. But it's geeky and it's fun. And I think it actually helps us understand our world. So tonight, we are going to shift gears. We're going to shift away from science, from family, from progress, to something that we all know quite a bit about. Ourselves. Yes, we all know ourselves. And so our starting point is Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law... Oh, no, where, where am I? Actually, that's not the one. Um, yeah. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So chapter 3, that's what I was wanting. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I also wanted to read in uh, Romans chapter 2, where it says... For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law, this is key, is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So let's pray for tonight. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that this wouldn't be academic, this wouldn't be just stuff that we're learning, but it would be transformative. Lord, there's so much of what we're going to be looking at tonight that we need to recapture. And so teach us what this looks like in our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you the question, what makes you so unique? What makes you so different from everyone else? That's a good question. I'm sure you've heard that question before. What makes, what makes you you? You got the only fingerprints of Ray Keelan in the world. We hope, yeah. And we're told, we're, we are told that everyone is different. In the same way that two snowflakes are not the same, you are the flakiest of the snowflakes. No. <laughs> we're all different, right? We're all unique. We're all distinct from one another. And we're told that in order to lead a meaningful life, we need to live out what makes each of us special. Have you heard this kind of stuff before? Yeah? Okay, good. And so this idea of the self is very normal, very self-evident. We don't even question it. It's, it's kind of the air that we breathe. So I'm gonna, let, let me give you these four statements and tell me if you've heard these things before. These four, four sentiments, actually. I think they, they sound quite familiar. Here's the first uh, sentiment. Tell me what you think. 
Don't let anyone tell you what to do or who to be. March to your own beat, man. Be yourself. Don't let the man bring you down. Okay, I'm, I'm dating it maybe into the 60s a little bit, but. <laughs> Don't trust the system. The system's stacked against you. Forge your own path and go your own way. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that sounds like most graduation speeches. That's right. Class of 19. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the second sentiment is this. If you want to know who you are, don't look out there, man. Just look inside yourself and find out who you are. Yeah? Okay. Third one. You can be whoever you want to be. Sky's the limit. You need to fulfill your destiny in your life. Mike mentioned this one last week. YOLO, which means you only live once. So don't worry about tomorrow, but live for the now, man. In the immortal words of the great poets, Trooper, we're here for a good time, not a long time. So have a good time. Why? The sun won't shine every day. <laughs> so be who you want to be and live for the moment, baby. Now, variations of these, I would guess, we've all heard before, yeah? If you have the Disney Channel, my guess is you've heard some of these before. Now, these approaches to the self really are omnipresent. They're everywhere around us, at least in the West, but I would say even beyond that. And we need to realize, but here's the thing, we need to realize that these ideas of the self and what it means to be me, what it means to be you, these ideas of the self are not self-evident. They haven't always been around. But the seeds for these ideas were planted in a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. And so, our topic this evening is the rise of the individual. And we're going to look at three things tonight. First thing, how the idea of the individual, of the self, comes about, how it emerges over time. Secondly, how this idea, though it's rooted in a Christian revolution, has shifted. And what we see happening is you see a shift from, we have to get this, we get a shift from the idea of being a person to being an individual. They're not the same. Thirdly, how we need to recover the uniquely Christian view of the person. Okay, so that's our agenda tonight. And so when I talk about the individual, and we will be talking about individualism, I'm not talking about the dignity and the sacredness of each person. I'm talking about a way of looking at the self, the sense of who you are. Now, some people say, what are you talking about, David? This idea of the self has been around forever. I mean, has, is that not the issue with humanity? Self, selfishness, right? 
Well, yes and no. How you see yourself, how you understand yourself in relationship to everything around you has changed quite drastically over time. An example I came across is an example by a fellow named Carl Truman. And Carl Truman, who's an English fellow, he was talking about his grandfather. And his grandfather worked, um, I think he worked the mines, he worked in a mine, um, I was going to say minefield, no, that's not the term. <laughs> he worked, you know, in, in, in the mines in Birmingham, England. And uh, Truman says, okay, if you had asked his grandfather, who lived in the early 20th century, um, what, or if you, if you asked him, are you fulfilled in your work? Do you find your work fulfilling? He probably wouldn't understand the question. He probably would say, well, what do you mean? I like, I can provide for my family. Is that what you mean? Um, it gives us income. We can have a roof over our heads. Is that what you're talking? No, no. Do you find it personally fulfilling? And just a couple generations ago, that question, if you ask somebody, like I, if I asked my grandfather that question, I don't think he would have understood the question. Or today, if you talk to a person, do you find your work fulfilling? Everybody would know the question and everybody would have an answer. So um, Truman asks, what has changed just in the, in the last hundred years in terms of our understanding of the self is, is, is changed quite a bit. So let, let me ask you a question just to get us going. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, so I'm just going to give you maybe like two or three minutes to answer this question. Why are the ideas of conformity and submission to authority seen in a negative light these days? And how do you feel when you hear the word conform and submit? Okay, so I'm going to have you just talk around your tables just for, 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 just for a couple seconds about this. Mike, if you want to hit the uh, pause on this. I'll ask you just very quickly, conformity, submit, these words, are they positive? Put up your hand if you find them positive. Ah, depends on the context, yeah. How about just from your gut reaction, how many of you would say it's kind of a negative? These are, you have a negative feeling with these words. Okay, huh? Yeah, some of you are like, I'm not putting up my hand. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Generally, gen now it's interesting because I am asking, I'm asking you, and most of you are followers of Jesus Christ. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we're told, do not conform to the world, right? We are also told to submit to the ways of Jesus. So we're kind of in a unique position. What's that? And to authority, that's right. If we ask this, downtown Vancouver <laughs> on any given day, you probably would get a different viewpoint. What I want to look at is I want to look at how this idea of the individual 
and um, my freedom from conformity and submission, how this, these values kind of emerge. And as always, because this is something that men do every week, we're going to talk about the Greco-Roman world. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently that's a thing, right? So in the Greco-Roman world, how important was the individual and his freedom? I say his because if it was her, yeah, there wasn't much, right? How important was the individual and his freedom in the Greco-Roman world? The answer is not very important. Uh, the primary unit in the ancient world was not the individual, but it was the family, and in particular, the head of the family, the pater familias. We've talked about this. And the head of the family was viewed in light of family worship and, 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 and ancestry. So, in the Greco-Roman world, the family was the unit, not the individual. And the only challenge to the pater familias, the head of the household, came maybe from loyalty to the state, or to, to the city, it's not the state, but to the city, the polis, the city-state, would also make appeals to your loyalty. And the bond to the city would often be a religious bond. Each city would have specific gods or goddesses that would be unique or featured in that city, and the temple would usually be prominent within the city or just on the edge of the city. And and the more prominent the, the temple, the more fancy the temple, the more people that would come, and the more people would donate, and the more and, and, and the more amazing it was, the more prosperous the city would become. So, all in all, in the Greco-Roman world, they viewed the world via the gods, the city, your ancestors, and then the family. But what is missing here? The idea of the individual. So if you're living in Rome in 25 AD and you say, Father, Father, I've been doing some soul searching. And I said, Dad, I need to spread my wings. I'm leaving home. I'm going to embark on a journey that is meaningful and personally fulfilling. That would have made no sense. Nobody would have done that. Would have made, it wouldn't have made any sense. That's why it kind of bugs me when I watch these old movies that are set in the Greco-Roman world and you go, Dad, I just got to do my own thing. I'm like, really? I don't think they would have done that. The same with, same with freedom. If somebody said, um, you know, hey, I don't want to live under any expectation. I want to live freely without restraints. I need to be me, Dad. Again, this wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. Because in the Greco-Roman world, we have an enclosed system in which every part of society understood its connection to the whole. Now, here's an interesting thing, a geeky, interesting note, that in the Greco-Roman world, if you were a person who somehow did not want to conform to the city-state, if you did not want to conform, so there'd be an example of a civic gathering, and everybody would gather in the, in the amphitheater to talk about a particular issue. If you are a business person, you're like, I'm not going to go. In fact, I'm going to keep my business open and maybe I can keep making money and I'm not going to participate in what everybody's talking about. So you choose to be outside of the whole. Do you know what you were called? There's an actual term. The actual term that they would use to describe you is idiotes. <laughs> Which word do we get from that? So when you call somebody an idiot, it means they're not conforming. That's where the word actually comes from. They're not conforming to the program. 
<laughs> Idiotes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the parable of the prodigal son, which was so shocking. That's a great question. It was so shocking, and this isn't within a Greco-Roman context. This is in more of a Jewish context, but it was still shocking because you had a person saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And that's why it's such a upside-down, shocking story. We hear it's like, well, yeah, no, I can understand. You know, kid probably needs to, you know, spread his wings and try different things and all oh, too bad it didn't work out no in the in the context of the first century what that son is asking it was basically saying he's saying to the pater familias in a way to the head of the household i wish you were dead give me my inheritance and within that context it's absolutely shocking and this, and the fact that the father and you think about it, it doesn't translate completely but you think about the the how exalted the pater we talked about his role over his wife and over daughters and those sorts of things can you imagine even in in in, in the first century in, in the jewish world where where you have the head of a household hiking up his his clothes to run to the sun it's, it's just it's it's mind-boggling so Here's the question then, how, what changed? How did this view of the self emerge? Well, big shock, it has something to do with this revolution 2,000 years ago. Christianity changed the rules of the Greco-Roman game. How? Well, the foundation of human identity was not found in the family, but actually was, uh, nor was it found in, 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 in the Roman hierarchy. But the foundation of human identity was found in the fact that we were equal before God. See, the Christian worldview says, your status doesn't matter. Every person needs to come before Jesus and be rescued. That all have sinned, including you, Mr. Philosopher King. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this reality has the effect of breaking down social divisions because it meant that the ground was level at the foot of the cross. And so it doesn't matter if you're a paterfamilias, it doesn't matter if you're a slave, you all need to be rescued by Jesus through the cross. Everyone is separated from God and needs to be saved. The other thing that Paul talks about is about conscience. He says, the law is written on our hearts. Each person, each person can relate to God via their conscience. It's a universal thing. And so this conscience could, could lead one to take a route or make a decision in contrast to the desires of the family. In the ancient world, this is huge. But this is something that the Christianity introduces. And the Bible says that each one of us needs to respond to the call of Jesus. That, that each person needs to deny themselves to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Now we think, yeah, of course. But you have to realize what an impact this has upon the way you see reality. And here's the point. It was a Christian worldview that provided the foundation for the individual to seeing the self. Now, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this. 
Um, how did we get to the idea? You know, it's one thing to talk about following Jesus and, and seeing myself as needing a savior. But it's another thing that says, hey, I'm an individual and I don't need anybody. So it's, it's a long way from, let me put it this way, it's a long way from the call of discipleship of a person in, 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 in the New Testament to the Marlboro Man. Are you guys, I mean, they don't have cigarette commercials anymore. I mean, what's the problem? Eh? But, but in the olden days, you know, the Marlboro Man, what was he like? Who did he need? He didn't need anyone. Just his cigarettes, right? And a Marlboro man just, you know, just, and a horse, yeah, and a horse, and didn't. So this idea of the self that I don't need anybody, I'm a Marlboro man. Sorry, I used to smoke because it comes a little too, a little too naturally to me. Um, so how does that happen? Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but some of you are thinking, David, is there a book that I can read that's really long that unpacks this? Well, there is. Um, <laughs> it's a book called by Larry Seidentop on the individual, and I can lend it to you if you're interested. But I'm going to point out a couple of steps um, that bring us to the point where we go from simply being a person that's following Jesus to this individual sense of self. Now, do you know what the key is? I can actually tell you where, where, where this change happens. I can even bring it down to the day of when it happens. I can even bring it down to the time of day, roughly. It's in the evening. Do you want to know when it all changed? It all changes in 1521, 6 p.m., on April 18th. Now what happened at 6 p.m. on April 18th, 1521? Well, there's a fellow named Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther is in a meeting in a place called Worms. Looks like Worms, but it's called Worms. Martin Luther's 37 years old. And he has to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's, he's been charged. He's been charged of, of spreading false teachings on topics ranging from the nature of the gospel, the authority of scripture, the nature of the church, the sacraments, and the authority of the Pope himself. And so this, org this, this meeting is called. And they ask Martin Luther, he's standing there, they ask him a simple question. Martin Luther, will you recant your writings? Luther says, can I have a day? And they say, all right, we'll give you a day. He comes back. He says, well, it's hard for me to say. <laughs> which, which writings do you want me to recant of? He says, There's, I've written on a lot of different things. And they say, stop playing games, man. Maybe they didn't say man, but they stop playing games. And so Luther, again, he says, look, if you can show me in my writings where I've gone wrong, and if you can prove it to me, I'll be the first to throw that work into the fire. Now, they're not satisfied. They say, will you recant 
And finally, Luther has no choice, and so he has this famous speech. He says, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it this manner, neither horn nor tooth, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. He didn't actually say the last part, but it sounds good. Okay, so this is a key event. This is the beginning of, of, what, of what? The Reformation, yes. Should have been teaching this last week on, on, on Reformation Day. Now, Martin Luther, his response, we were like, okay, that's really good, but you have to catch this. This is really, really important. How Martin Luther answers this question has ripple effects that you and I are experiencing today. Because what does Luther say? Well, he's, he, he says, I, I, we, I've rediscovered the doctrine of grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura. I just love saying that because it sounds cool. Um, you know, by, you know by, by grace alone and faith alone and scripture alone. And Luther said, you cannot trust the Pope and the church. You cannot trust the man. You cannot trust these authorities. You don't need to submit to them. What you need to pay attention to is what? Scriptures and your conscience. Okay, hang on. All right. So, we have the doctrine of justification by faith. We are made right through faith alone. It's God who saves and he imputes his righteousness upon the sinner, the individual sinner. Secondly, if I can be saved by faith, right? How are we saved? Saved by grace through faith, right? Now, what's, what's the assumption of this? If I can be saved by faith, I can also choose not to have faith and not be saved. And so where does salvation lie? In me. Now, and there's a big debate. He's like, can you resist? And those, and that Calvin and all those guys get into that. We're, we're not talking about that. Thirdly, the priests of all believers, every person could know God and be in a direct relationship with God himself. Every person needs to turn to Jesus themselves. They can't rely upon the church. They can't rely upon the sacraments. They need to make a decision. Okay? So you have a really important role of the individual, the self. And the authority of Scripture. You don't need to trust in the Pope. You don't need to read the councils. You don't need to see their commentaries. You just read the Bible. Every person should have a Bible. You shouldn't have to go to a monastery. You should have a Bible. You read the Bible. Use your head. Use your reason. And it will make sense to you. Now, you need to know every one of those things I say amen and amen to. 
But there's an unintended consequence to the Reformation. Now, there's a debate. Maybe it's earlier or whatever. But are you tracking with me so far? You can see where I'm going. There is an unintended consequence. In fact, there's, there's part of the story of the Diet of Worms that's never told. Because it always ends with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do, I can do no other. And everybody's like, ah! or the Catholics go boo. Um, but there's an actual follow-up to the story that very few people notice. And the follow-up to the story is that the emperor, his secretary, says something to Martin Luther. And this is what he says. Well, he rebukes Martin Luther. He says, who are you to set yourself up over against the great councils of the church? And then he says this, quote, in this you are completely mad. For what purpose does it serve to raise a new dispute about matters condemned through so many centuries by church and council? Why are you bringing up these issues? We've decided on these hundreds of years ago. Unless perhaps reason must be given to just about anything whatsoever. Are we going to open up all sorts of questions about our faith? But if it were granted that whoever contradicts the councils and common understanding of the church must be overcome by scripture passages, we'll have nothing in Christianity that is certain or decided. He says, if, if it's up to your conscience, well then what, what, what can we know about anything? And what if everybody simply followed their conscience? We'll have nothing that is certain. All we'll have is just personal opinions. Now, are you with me? This is why it's called, there's a book that was written, it's called Christianity's Dangerous Idea, or another book called The Unintended Reformation, because one of the unintended consequences, and I wouldn't lay this on Luther, and we can talk about this more, but, but it comes afterwards, and it's this, if my conscience, my reading, my opinion becomes preeminent, then what does that do to the idea of the individual? It elevates the individual, doesn't it? It elevates the importance of the individual in making sense out of God's revelation and God's word. But what happens? What happens if I get to the point where I'm like, huh, if, if it's up to me, my conscience, my reading, my opinion, what if I come up using my reason, what if I decide that God doesn't exist? Because I'm the starting point. It's, the, it's, it's my conscience, my opinion, my reading. What if I decide, using reason, that God does not exist? And so you notice there's a subtle shift because the starting point is no longer God's revelation, but in some ways it becomes the self. And sure enough, and now I wouldn't locate this in Luther, but it's, it's a consequence of it, an unintended consequence. Sure enough, it doesn't take long before people start to go down this road. So Mike introduced to us uh, Rene Descartes last week. And Rene Descartes, look at his years. He's just after Luther. And, and what does Den, uh, Rene Descartes say? He says, you know what? He says, he says, um, 
Our minds are able to make sense of the world. But our minds must impose order and good onto the world around us. Descartes says, you know, we need to look at our bodies and this outside world almost like machines. <laughs> I think they even referred to, one of the guys referred to, um, you know, certain animals as, as simply machines. And so this idea that, that my mind is able to, to not only understand reality, but impose itself upon reality, becomes an idea that Descartes begins to put forward. And, and, and you guys know, last week Mike was talking about this, what is Descartes' famous line? I think, therefore I am. And again, he's, he's saying, what can I know? What can a person know? Now, in the past, in the medieval world, they say, what can you know? Well, what does God reveal? Descartes says, forget that. What can we know for sure? I'm thinking, and so I know that I exist. And so the starting point for reality is who? It's me. Is me. And now I become the starting point for talking about all sorts of things, including God. Now, a guy like John Locke gets hold of this, and John Locke says, yeah, there's no, there's no purpose to life. There's no natural purpose in life. Basically, human beings are, 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 are creatures that, that seek pleasure and try to avoid pain, and, and it's not good to try to impose something on my soul. I should be able to free to do whatever I want to do. I need to have freedom of the will to do whatever I want to do. And, and Rousseau, this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who comes right after that, um, he has this famous line. He says, man is born free, but everywhere he's in change. And, and what Rousseau says, you know what? We need to have freedom. We need to have freedom to do whatever we want. And do you know what gets in the way? Do you know what gets in the way? It's society and its, and its shackles and its ways that it tries to squeeze us into his box. What we need to do is we need to have freedom, baby to seek out our inner nature. Just look inside yourself. If you want to know where Disney got its ideas from, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Though I doubt if they know that. But um, it is, because Rousseau said, you know, just if you look deep inside yourself and you understand the, the true person that you truly are, you'll know that you're, you're created to be free and what gets in the way is, 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 is the state and the world and all those sorts of things. And, you know, some of these ideas contribute to an event that takes place in 1789. What takes place in 1789? The French Revolution, yeah. So, there's lots more we can say, but I'm going to stop here. Because these are the ideas, these are the foundations for secularism. Where does the idea of secularism come from? Well, it comes through some of these, these, um, these shifts. And these are the foundations for individualism. Now, just can I give you just one, one more geeky, one more geeky point? Here's one more geeky point: is that the biggest challenge to Christianity today, secularism, is actually a product of Christianity. 
Isn't that, it's, and so it's called the grave digger hypothesis, that, that Christianity has dug its own grave. Like just historically, the way things turn out, because secularism is basically a Christian heresy. It's like Christian ideas, but without God. Anyhow, some of you are like, okay, I, I have no idea what you've just been talking about, David. Um, yeah, I heard something about philosophy and Rousseau and, 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 and th that's okay. You know me, I like church history and I like history of ideas. And so the point you need to grab onto is this, is that there's a big shift that takes place from the Bible's idea that we are persons in relationship with God to the idea that we are individuals needing nobody else. And this shift actually takes place in history. And it's rooted in a Christian idea of the person, but man, it looks differently today. And so I want to look at what individualism looks like today. And then I want to present a way out of it. <laughs> so what are the characteristics of, of, of individualism? Well, the first one is this. I am the primary reality in the universe. <laughs> Margaret Mead puts, always remember that you're unique, just like everyone else. Um, in fact, if in, uh, individualism creates a society of idiots, idiotes, you know, people who are trying to live outside the system, people who view themselves as a prime reality of the universe. I'm the center of reality, and so are my desires, my goals, my needs. And, and we live in a world where individualism says, you, what is unique about you is what makes you you. Your difference our difference from each other is what makes me, me, and you, you. Actually, I don't really care about you, but it's what makes me, me, right? And, and so this is really important. What is essential about me is what is unique to me. Now, interesting, in our day and age, what makes you unique is usually expressed in sexual or gender terms, but that's a whole other topic. It's our uniqueness that makes us special. The problem is, as I occupy my time just trying to show how different I am from Ray, I don't try to show where we're the same, where we share a common humanity. I want to say, I'm very different from Chris. I'm not Chris. Thanks be to God. No, I don't believe in God. No. Uh, <laughs> right? So we define ourselves by our differences. And that's one of the tenets of individualism. Now, just for fun, around your tables, um, how do you see this idea of being unique and this preoccupation with being unique played out in relationships and social media? Okay, that'll be a fun conversation around your table. How do you see this idea of being very unique and wanting to be unique and wanting to be different from each other being played out in relationships and social media? So I'll just give you a chance to talk about that. If you want to pa pause that mic. And, uh, have a <laughs> There's a lot to say. How do we see this played out in relationship, particularly on social media? I, I love the, um, I was reading a little bit of, of our uh, online conversation. There's some uh, 
really neat uh, ideas flowing around because there are, it's not cut and dry. Like there, there's, we live in a world where there's this hyper emphasis on uniqueness and individualism and yet there's also a type of tribalism that also goes that differentiates one group from another group. So you get this idea of uniqueness but also in, in smaller echo chambers as well. So yeah. But one of the primary characteristics of individualism is this idea that I am the center of the universe. Uh, I am. Now, we, we laugh at that, and we think that's kind of strange. And yet, throughout the day, try, try to observe how, how often, like I know, I'll speak for myself, I know that 99.93% of the time that I'm angry is because someone has not treated me as importantly as I think they ought to treat me. Almost all the time. When I get angry, if I, if I, if I drill down, it's usually something like that. Someone's not, you know, kind of treating me poorly and I think I ought to be treated differently. I, it's, it's usually some kind of self-ish reason. And, and, and it's a pretty big picture of, of, of my sense of self. And so it runs really deep in our culture. The other idea in, in an individualistic idea, uh, way of thinking is that individuals are and ought to be free. Freedom is a very, very high value. Now, freedom stands by itself, and we've talked about this. It's not freedom so much to, but it's a lot of it's freedom from, freedom from any sense of imposition of, 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 of authority upon me. And the idea is that to be truly human, in an individualist way of thinking, is to be free, is to be liberated, to be able to do what we want so that we can be our true selves. And again, you hear a little echo of Rousseau. So what is individualism freeing me from? Well, it's usually some sense of some sense of authority, right? And how many movies do you, I, I was writing down a bunch of movies, um, and, and the movie, the narrative usually goes something like that. It goes like something like this. There comes a time in every person's life when they must leave home and make their own way in the world. Um, and, and they meet, need to, to break free from the confines of small town, what, or, 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 or Tatooine, right? Or, you know, if you're looking at, in, in Star Wars, right? You know, break free from Uncle Ben. Oh, Uncle Ben or Uncle Owen? Owen, right? Uncle Owen? Uncle Owen? Yeah, I can hear him squeaking. Um, yeah, you gotta break free. Um, you see the same in, <laughs> Footloose, Dirty Dancing, uh, and every, practically every Hallmark film, this is the, uh, this is the theme. And it's a story of individualism where someone needs to find themselves. They need to create themselves. They need to be themselves. Um, and it's the leaving that sets them free so that they can self-define who they are. And once they figure out who they are, you better not get in their way. And so individualism um, has with it this idea of freedom. And so you end up standing apart. Again, it's this sense of uniqueness, too. My freedom to march to my own beat. 
even if everyone else disagrees with me, I'm going to do my own thing. And so one of the, the challenges we see in our, in our culture where we have such an emphasis in our culture on freedom, but freedom without an object. I need to be free. Don't get in my way. Is, is we are paralyzed by all the choices because we tell somebody, we tell kids, hey, you can be whoever you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you something different. Go for it. And they're like, ah, what do I do? And, and, and not only that, we add a few things. We say, you can be whatever you want to be. You don't have to be a male. You don't have to be a female. You can, you can be whatever. This is absolute freedom. And the kids are like, okay, not only am I free to make all these decisions in life, I also have to make decisions about what I am. And it's just very difficult. And so one of the characteristics, one of the, the consequences is you have people that they have so much choice that any kind of settling down, any kind of, um, um, any kind of system, whether it be a family or whatever it has to be, is seen as an imposition. And I was just reading an interesting article yesterday about the plummeting birth rates in North America, especially among millennials. They're not having children. The third characteristic is this, is that individuals are to be held responsible for their own actions, but only their own actions. And so I'm not my brother's keeper. He is his own person and I am mine. And in fact, whatever decisions I make, I'm responsible for that. But that means you better not question my decisions. You have no right to criticize how I live. You don't know who I am. And so in individualism, it's almost impossible, though we still do this. It's almost impossible to allow anyone else to impose moral beliefs or standards on me. At least that's the theory. It, 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 in, in practice, it, 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 there's, there's, um, it doesn't always work out that way. The fourth thing is this, that an individual's subjective experience of the world is real. So how I experience the world, that's true to me. That is true to me. And so, I mean, if you think about it, if, if we live in a world where what is true to me may not be true to you, you know, you, you be you, you have your own truth and I have my own truth. Um, and reality is reality to me and reality is reality to you and you have your own views and I have my own views. How do you share the gospel in this kind of context? Like if, if somebody, like, and I, you've probably experienced this. If you say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Some people, they might get mad at you, but more often than not, polite Canadians, they say, well, good for you. Oh, that's awesome. So that's, 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 that's really good. And, and yeah, and if, if we say, have you, have you thought about following Jesus? Hey, man, hey, that's good for you. It, and, and, and you know what? That may be true to you, but it's not true to me. Now, where do you go from that? 
And he said, well, you know, Jesus, he lived, um, he entered into this world 2,000 years. 2,000, what are you talking to me about? Some old thing from the from days of your, that, hey, fill your boots, have fun with that. And it's really hard to share the gospel with a highly individualized world, in a highly individualized world. Huge challenges. That's why we have Alpha, and Alpha is able to get around. Now, the genius of Alpha is what I'm going to share in just in a few minutes. Yeah, because there's something about Alpha that, 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 that breaks through this, and I'll talk about that just in a moment. The other idea of individualism is that we possess certain rights over and against collectives. Uh, the group cannot trample on the rights of the individual, but that, again, that's... that's there, there are some changes happening in our culture, but we won't talk about that right now. And at the end of the day, I'm responsible for creating myself. Now, one of the characteristics, one of the impacts of individualism is that we do see in our culture all this paralysis of choice, and this freedom, this uh, freedom without an object, and, and it's created a sense of anxiety and restlessness, and I think a, a loss of hope, because people don't know, they don't know how to live. And if I say, hey, do whatever you want to do, and like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, hey, do, you know, make your life meaningful. Okay, I'll try. And we have no, we have no basis and nowhere to get information to help us live our lives. We just get little sound bites. And so this is why the Christian response, a Christian understanding of personhood is vital for us to recover. And you have to see this, that the Christian understanding of a person is different from that idea of the individual. An individual is different from a person. Okay, let me explain. <laughs> I knew as soon as I said, you're like, what? <laughs> There's a difference. Now, what, what do I mean by person? Well, let's begin, and we're going to begin with, with big pictures, because theology shapes anthropology. We've talked about that. How we see God shapes how we see people. So what do we know about God? Well, we begin with God, and we know that God has revealed himself in Scripture as a trinity, as triune, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three and one, and one and three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each existing together as one God eternally. And there's different words that are used to describe the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in history. One really cool word is a word, perichoresis, which you think of periscope, and you think of a chorus line, you think of this turning around and this almost this cosmic divine dance, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting. And so we read in the Bible that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But when we say God is love, we don't mean God is narcissistic. We don't mean God is love, God just loves himself, doesn't care about anyone else. But we say if God is love and God is triune, what does that mean? Is that there's something about God's very nature and relationship and love that go together. So what we learn is that, that the heart of God is relationship, and thus God is personal. And what that means is that you and I 
will experience freedom, will experience fulfillment only when we are in relationship. So there's a story, I mean, some of you may remember Mother Teresa and the work that she did among, you know, street kids and, and orphans in Calcutta, Calcutta wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but some group of kids that Mother and, and, and her organization could not reach. And these are kids that could not change. And what these kids were, these are kids that were left on their own and, and, and went for long periods of time, formative periods of, of their lives, by themselves, without any relationship. And she says, these kids who lived without relationship, um, they just died on the inside. And they, they, were, they could not even function. And so the key to, to being human, like when we isolate ourselves, we actually become less than human. But when we live in relationships, we become persons. And that reflects the very nature of God, who in his very nature is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal relationship. And God is a self-giving creator. God does not need to create. <laughs> what does Pastor Mark always say? He can't help himself. He has to create. He's a self-giving God. He's a self-giving redeemer. He sends his son to rescue us, to reconcile us, to reconcile us into what? A relationship with him. And then we also read that God is holy. And holy is not simply, oh, I don't want to do this. Holy is not just set apart, I'm not going to do this. But holiness in the Bible is something that you can transmit to somebody. It's, it's, it's like when Jesus touches a leper, Jesus doesn't get leprosy. The leper is healed. And so holiness is something that is transmitted. It is, it is, it is almost contagious. Holiness is... is um, is, is something that God brings into this world and, and, and spreads. It's like light. Light spreads. The salt spreads. So God is holy. He is light. He is love. He is life. And he's self-giving and he's abundant. And he has created us. And so this is a very character of God and when we are rescued by Jesus, we are brought into the life of God. And so, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, to be a human being means we are created. We're created by God, but we're also unlike any other creature. What does Adam do? He's naming all the animals, naming them, naming them, but he could not find a suitable helper, could not find someone suitable to him until God creates woman, right? And so we are made, we are creatures. We are also made in the image of God, and we've talked about this. That we, and so to be made in the image of God means we have dignity and value, but it also means we are to image God, to be like him. And so that means we are called to be in relationship. And so our identity, so my identity is not trying very hard not to be like Dave, though we do share the same name. That's not where my identity is found. It's not by trying not to be him, by being unique. My identity is found in friendship, in relationship. Do you see how different, do you see how different that is from individualism? 
that we are called to be persons in relationships. And so sometimes you wonder, okay, why do we always talk about community groups in our church? Why do we always say, you know, you're not supposed to do life alone? Is this just something that churches say? No, it's part of what it means to be human. We need to be people in relationship. And we need to recognize, yes, we are born in the image of Adam. We are sinful. We are broken. We are exiled. But we are still loved by God. We're deeply, deeply loved. And out of that love, we can love others. And out of God's love for us, we can properly love ourselves. That's the thing. It's not like we're to hate ourselves. That's, we're called to love ourselves, but love ourselves properly. And, and you can only know yourself and you can only love yourself when it is safe to do so, when you're safe in relationship with God. When you know that you are accepted, that you've been reconciled, that you are deeply, deeply loved, then you can start looking at yourself. You can even learn, learn to, to, to love yourself, not in a selfish way, but in a way it's like, thank you, Lord, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When we know how deeply we're loved, we can love ourselves and we can love others. And I find the people who love others the best have a good sense of love for themselves. Someone who hates themselves really has a hard time loving others. And then God, finally we are called by God. We're called into this new, new life. So, What role does uniqueness play in this? How can we be unique and still be Christian and, and, and living as persons rather than individuals? Does that mean we all kind of meld into one blob of a <laughs> Christian person or can we still be unique? Well, that's a good question for you guys to talk about. Just going to give you a couple minutes. How can you be unique and yes, also live out this vision of personhood that God gives us? Okay, so I'm just going to, it's a hard question, but I'm going to give you a couple minutes to talk about that. If you want to just pause it, Mike. Because often I hear people say that, okay, if you're going to become a Christian, you're just going to kind of blend in. You're going to become this milk toast, boring, you know, man, you used to be so cool when you used to hang out with us and now you're all Christian-y and you're just blending in and you're dressing like everybody else and, and you're boring, man. Um, but how can, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how can we also be unique? What does uniqueness look like? So being made in God's image means we're unique simply by the fact that we are created by God differently. Yeah. Yeah. So we have different gifts and different personalities and we can, and we can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We might be the only person who's offering them help. That's right. 
And it makes a big difference if we're not living in competition. Because uniqueness in individualism is I need to be unique in order for it to be unique. I need to be uniquer than you. Right? And or sometimes I need to push you down in order to stand out. But as Vedi, you're saying that um, part of the, 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 the picture is that if we know how much we are loved, and I love the way you said that, if we know how much we are loved, well, then you don't need to impress. You can freely be the person that God has created and redeemed you to be. And I don't need to compete with you. And the moment I compete with you, something dehumanizing happens to me. I become less of a human. Whereas when we are in relationship, and we are, and, 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 and we can be in relationship, and you know, Ken, you can use your gifts, and I'll use my gifts, and I'm not going to be in competition, because I'm pretty sure that the author of the universe still loves me, even though I may not be able to fix things like Ken does, or not even close, <laughs> and nor do I have the hair like Ken. No. Um, but I mean, those, those are, those are, those things set us free when you know how, how, how loved you are. And I think you, the uniqueness is something that, that, um, you can see in the church and you see that through spiritual gifts. And everybody has different gifts, exercising the gifts for the sake of the body. The problem is, is sometimes as, as Christians, we, we get into this idea of Christian culture. And Christian culture, what, do you play cards? Oh, that's wrong. Do you play rook? That's okay. You know, um, you know, you can play certain, certain games, but you can't, you know, you can wear certain clothes, but you can. You listen to certain music, but not. A, and then you get this homogenous Christian culture, which really is boring. And that's what kept me away from Christianity for so long. But when you really realize what we're invited into, it's so much richer than living in competition with one another. So, the point that I want you to walk away with a little bit tonight is this, is the rise of the individual, this individualism, is actually a consequence of this Christian revolution. But the problem is, that this original vision of Christianity to be a person in relationship to God and with one another, to be a person, shifted over time to becoming a Marlboro man or an isolated individual, a loner, a John Wick martial arts type who only needs his dog, but his dog gets killed. Um, the individual who bucks the system, who refuses to conform, who doesn't need God, I just need myself. Well, that's not a Christian vision. And we have to be careful because sometimes as Christians, we buy into this individual storyline. And it's kind of appealing at times. It's like, you know, the, 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 the loner, you know, who comes in and saves the town. It's like, hey, man, why don't you stay with us and be in community? It's like, no, man, I'm going to go to the next town, and they head off, right? And, and everybody's like, wow, you're so cool. No, that's actually not a Christian vision of what it means to be a human being. Individualism is based on a flawed view of reality. The self is not the universe's ultimate reality. In fact, every one of us needs a little bit of a dose of Ecclesiastes 1. Um, 
or 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 first peter you know where all flesh is is grass and all the glory of man is a flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls away but the word of the lord stands forever right we need a little bit of that i always remember do you guys remember do you guys remember um some of you probably won't remember but her, her name was shirley mclean did i ever tell you about shirley mclean do you know shirley mclean and she was an actress, but she was also quite into kind of some new ages type stuff. And so there's a there's a famous story. I don't know if you know about the story that uh, where she's standing uh, by the ocean and her arms are open and she's looking at the ocean and she yells out. She goes, "Did I ever share this?" She goes, "She goes, I am God, or I am a God. I forget which one it was." And everybody's like, wow, yeah, because she, uh, she understood the God within her. And she goes, I am God. And somebody was talking about this. And they said, can you imagine the author of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who flung the stars into space, who, who flung the universe into, you know, created the universe, standing over all the galaxies, you know, all the solar systems, all the stars, and all the planets throughout this universe. And, and then far, far on the far end of the universe, there's this little, little tiny dot, and that's the sun. And then there's this teeny, tiny little dot, and that's the earth. And then there's teeny, 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 teeny little speck going, I am God. And just how ridiculous that is, right? <laughs> just how ridiculous that is. And the, the, the reality is, is that we're not self-sufficient. We're not self-enclosed. We need one another, and we need God. And so this idea of individualism is based on a flawed view of a lot of things, a flawed view of human nature. The old poem, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, is wrong. Or to put it differently, Paul Simon got it wrong. He is not a rock, right? We need God's love. And this, this individualism has a flawed view of freedom. Freedom needs an object. We, yes, we're called to be free. We read Paul say it is for freedom that Christ came to set us free, but freedom to do what? Freedom to do good. Freedom to do the good. And one of the paradoxes of the Bible is this, is that when we lose our lives, when we die to ourselves, when we die and follow Jesus, only then will we live. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for, for me will find it. Now, this viewpoint didn't make a lot of sense to the Greeks, didn't make a lot of sense to our individualist world, but Christianity places God at the center of reality, and he's a loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're invited to image him in our own relationships, and when we love one another, when we're in friendship, with one another, we are imaging who God is, and we will live and flourish. Does that make sense? So that's what I wanted to share with you tonight. So I'm going to close our time in a moment, but just so you know, next week we're going to be talking about, are you ready? Death. <laughs> we're going to be talking about Christian understanding of death and the Greco-Roman understanding of death, and our secular world's understanding of death. And believe it or not, it will be a lot of fun. So that's what we're going to be looking at next week. But let me close our time in prayer. 
Lord, we, uh, we are completely dependent upon you. We live, we breathe, we have our being because of you. But we also are made in your image and we image who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we enter into relationships and friendships with one another, we are in, 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 in some mysterious way imaging you, reflecting who you are. And so help us to resist the urge to isolate ourselves, to think that, you know, the, 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 the individual who doesn't need anybody's help is, 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 is the ideal. That is not the ideal. The ideal is to know how much we are loved. We are in dependence upon you and we depend upon one another. And so help us to embrace this vision of humanness that you give us, to be persons and not individuals. We lay that before you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.